0: Continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, we are in Luke chapter 3 and we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of the Gospel of Luke. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, we'll get a Bible right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 14 this morning. Starting in verse 1, we read, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysenis, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the sons of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he wandered into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The quicker places shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to save yourself. So we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then, ten, then tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content." with your wages. The title of my message this morning is, is Extreme Makeover Spiritual Edition. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us the things that we need to see in our lives this morning through your word, God. We pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. Attentive ears, Lord. We know that as we dig into your word, you have something to say to each one of us. And we do pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially touch their heart, open their eyes to see their need for you, the need for a Savior, and they would turn from their sin and turn to you today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We give it to you. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before HGTV, before Fixer Upper, and all the countless other home improvement shows before Extreme Makeover Home Edition, there was this one, the very first reality show just called Extreme Makeover. But instead of a home being made over, it was a person who was literally made over physically from head to toe. I mean, they had plastic surgery done on them if they needed it. They did extensive dental work. And after they recovered from all of that, then they spent months with a trainer losing weight and building up that muscle tone. They would hire professional makeup artists to come in and hairstylists hairstylists, to do this transforming work on them. The person would get a a brand new wardrobe. And during the show, they would film these these changes and, and these various parts of this person's transformation as it took place. Now, the best part, of course, was the big reveal when after, uh, you know, the extreme makeover was complete, the completely transformed person, they would show a picture of them before, which I think they would make them look really horrible. You know, the hair's all messed up, and the blackened blacking out a tooth, and maybe, you know, glasses on them, so they look really bad. Then they come out, and they look just this perfectly made-up person, just look like, like, like a, a movie star, something all made out. And I always wondered, I enjoyed the show, but I always wondered what they looked like A week later, or two weeks later, a year later, you know, back to the old person all over again. Did the makeover last. I bring this up because in our text, John the Baptist is calling God's people out into the wilderness for a permanent extreme makeover. It's going to involve filling valleys and leveling mountains and straightening what was crooked and smoothing what was rough. If it were a TV show, it might be called Extreme Makeover Spiritual Edition. And it wasn't accomplished through plastic surgery or tummy tucks. No, the way to accomplish this is through repentance. You know, uh, there may, may be some of us that, that want a surgeon's extreme makeover or maybe an extreme makeover for our home, but uh, really the extreme makeover in our life begins in our hearts. And the great thing is there's no application to fill out, nothing you need to do in order to qualify. It's simply just repent. And that's the subject of our study this morning, repentance. Not a fun subject, not some, oh, great, we get to talk about repentance this morning, but it's something that's in God's Word, and we need to talk about it. And so if you're a note-taker, we're going to see three points this morning. We're going to see, first of all, the man, number one, number two, the message, and number three, the makeover. Let's first look at the man. His name is John the Baptist. Some call him John the, the Baptizer. In verses 1 and 2, I'm not going to try to read them again. But with careful detail, Luke goes to great lengths to pinpoint the exact time of the beginning of Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. This is the very beginning of their ministries. He uses the names of a number of men so we know exactly when all of this took place. He mentions Tiberius. He mentions Herod and his brother uh, Philip. There are also religious names that he mentions here as well. Annas and Caiaphas, they two men that have co- really corrupted the priesthood at the time. We know that Annas, of course, was uh, the guy who owned the booth there in the temple, you know, where the money changes were at. And they had the tables all set up. And Jesus went in there not once, but twice, and turned over those tables. Caiaphas was also known because he would be played a key role in the crucifixion of our Lord, causing the Lord to say, to Pilate... The one who has delivered me to you has created the greater sin. So what you have in the picture here, we have a corrupt government. We have a corrupt religious establishment. I mean, it all looks extremely horrible. That really is our before picture, if you would. We can see the need for an extreme makeover. There was only one solution. It's found in verse 2. The word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. See, times are especially right for this radical-like person, John, to burst onto the scene. Now, in the eyes of the world, one emperor, one governor, three tetrarchs, and and two high priests, they were really important. But notice that the word of the Lord doesn't come to them, doesn't come to the emperor, the tetrarchs, or or to the high priests. didn't come to to Rome. didn't come to, to Jerusalem. It came to a man living out in the middle of the wilderness. See, God looked at the situation differently than maybe uh, they would, ever you or I had. Not from the outside, but from the inside looking out. Looking on the hearts of men, seeing what they needed. And they know that the government or religion wasn't their problem, so to change either one would not be the solution. It was their hearts that needed a radical change, a kind made possible only by a revival of God's Word. Maybe you are having problems with our government presently. I I think we all do, and and we certainly understand. Maybe you have problems with a religious establishment. But more than likely, our problems are things more day-to-day problems. Maybe it's a marriage problem. Maybe it's a family problem. Maybe it's an employment problem or, or financial needs. But what you need to do is look at your situation from the inside out to see that God wants to do a work in our hearts. You know, when I think of the show Fixer Upper there with Chip and Joanna Gaines, and they go through each house when they first pick the house they want, and they go, okay, this room here, we're going to take down this fireplace. We're going to put this wall over here. We're going to fix it over here. And they tell them what changes they want to take place in in the house. Well, God wants to do the same thing in our lives. And he goes room by room, and he says, okay, we're going to work on this area in your life. We're going to work on this, and this is what we see to happen. And Now, how does he do that? Well, it begins by you and I being in the Word of God, getting back to the Word of God. Again, verse 2 says, The Word of God came to John. God spoke to John, His Word. Listen, when you open up God's Word, and you pray, Lord, speak to my heart, God will answer that prayer every single time you pray that. And he'll go room by room in your life and he'll say, Hey, Tom, you need to work on this area in your life. And you need to work on this area in your life. And you read a little more. You go, Oh, wow, that I, I need to work on that. And you read a little more. I need to work on that. I have said this many times. I'm thankful that God doesn't show me all the areas at once and say, Man, Tom, you to know, work on all these. It'd be overwhelming. But he takes it little by little. Okay, I didn't know I had this problem. I read this in your Word. I see I have this problem. I need to work on that. And God does that. Now, here in our text, at this point in time, we don't know what happened to John's parents. Uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, we know that when Elizabeth became pregnant, she was, uh, well advanced in years, as John, uh, as, uh, uh, Zacharias called his wife, and, and Zacharias was old. So they probably have passed from the scene at this point. So here is John living out in the desert, just waiting on God and the fulfilling and the call that, that God had on his life, praying and preparing to make his mark at the right moment which would be a a very short but a very powerful ministry that he would have. I mean, he was being trained and prepared by God himself, we read here, that the Word of God came to him. Not so unlike Elijah, who John came in the spirit and the power of, or even Moses, who also received that special training from the Lord. Now, John, we know, he was a rough guy. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, he's described as clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and its food was locust and wild honey. Now I get the honey part. I like honey. But locust? I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, no. You know what a gross insect to eat. But that was a part of John's diet. It's a crunchy, kosher snack of the day. You know, many cultures actually still eat these to this day. And you'll see pictures in these large bowls of them and they're a high source of nutrition and, and, and good food. No, thank you. But here was this guy. with Long, fluffy beard. Long, growing hair. got a camel's coat on, a leather belt around his waist. Eating a diet that probably none of us would go near. Might even have a locust leg hanging out of his mouth. Riding his Harley Davidson camel edition. I I don't know. Just a rough guy. But you see, this is all about John being set apart for the ministry that God was calling him to do. And here was a guy that would baffle all of the wise intellects and the religious leaders of his day. Why? Because he was absolutely contrary to that what you would expect. You may know this or not, but John's genealogy brought him through the high priestly line of Aaron so that John would actually be in line to be used in the temple as the high priest. And John could have been there at this time, there in the temple with all his priestly robes on, doing the religious thing of that day. But that wasn't John. John moved outside of tradition. There he was, out in the wilderness, eating these wild locusts and honey and being what some people might label him as a religious wild man. Why? Well, because according to verse 4, he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And it's interesting that the word for crying can also be translated howling. A voice of one howling in the wilderness. Have you ever heard someone howl? Actually, it's just yelling. John didn't need a, a megaphone. He didn't need a sound system. His voice was heard and, and certainly he couldn't ignore what he was saying. He was a man on a mission And because he had such a significant but short-lived work to do, there was no time to waste. As soon as he heard from the Lord, he reacted. We also know he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember when the angel came to Gabriel and told Zacharias, John's father, uh, said, speaking of John, it says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 15. He said, "...for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." And she drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And you remember when Elizabeth was pregnant with John and Mary showed up, who had just found out she was pregnant with Jesus, so that when John was still in Elizabeth's womb, she, he sensed the presence of his cousin Jesus, and the Bible says that he'd leap within the womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the spirit empowerment happened before he was even born. He was filled with the Spirit, and verse 15 of chapter 1 says that he made his commitment to not touch alcohol, to not drink, neither strong, neither wine nor strong drink. I think that's a, a question that needs to be answered that's often asked. Is it okay for Christians to drink? Well, that depends on what you want to drink. I think water's good. I think you know Arnold Palmer's are really good. Half lemonade, half iced tea is pretty good. I like coffee, you know, but should Christians drink alcohol? Well, here's my thoughts on this. If I don't drink, I won't get drunk. Right? Amazing thoughts, right? But listen, if, if I do drink, I can potentially come under its influence. So my question would be, why would you want to come under the power of a false intoxicant, be it alcohol or drugs or anything else? God warns us repeatedly in Scripture the devastating powers of alcohol. Proverbs 22, 32, and 33 says, At last it bites like a serpent and sings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Instead of alcohol, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 19, he says, See then that you walk, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the days because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he says, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. He says, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart for the Lord. Rather than be filled with some other spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. John would not touch alcohol. He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He was rock-like in his convictions. In fact, Jesus said of John and Matthew's gospel, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? In other words, did you go out there to see some wishy-washy guy out there? No. This guy was rock. He was solid. And let me tell you, he did not care about public opinion, what they thought of him. He knew what he believed. He knew what he was there to do, and he did it. He was sure of his message, and he was sure of his calling, and he was sure of his Lord. He was called to prepare the way of the Lord. That was the man. This brings us to point number two, the message. What was John's message? Look at verse three. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. His message? Repentance. He called the people to repent. Now understand, it's been silent for some 400 years since Israel heard from God. There'd been no angelic appearances, no miracles, no prophets, boldly speaking from heaven. Up until this point, they've had a progressive, you know, string of prophets from Moses to Samuel to Malachi. And then the silence for 400 years. Uh, There's there's the the announcement of the birth of Jesus and and of, of John. But now here, out of no place, seeming out of nowhere, but right on track on God's timetable, this prophet, much like Elijah, in his style and his dignity, comes onto the scene, and his first words are, repent. Repent. Now, many of us know that means to stop the direction you're going, and turn and go the other way. Turn from your sins, and turn to Christ. It's a word that we normally use in evangelism for someone who is lost, someone who is unsaved. Turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, he'll forgive you of your sin. And although the Jews were sometimes immersed in water to signify a total commitment to God, for the most part, baptism back then, before Christ, were Gentiles who were being converted to Judaism. It was a symbolic washing of the filth from their pagan background. So when John is shouting the need for baptism of repentance to the Jews, he's basically telling them that they are no more right with God than the Gentiles were. They were no better off spiritually than the Gentiles were. In other words, John's message of repentance was not geared towards unbelievers, but to believers. They were for the people of God. And listening listening to it and submitting to it would be admitting that they had a spiritual need. So those who want to be baptized by John in the wilderness was acknowledging that they were in a spiritual wilderness themselves. And so John, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, gives hope to those that are in need with his message of hope, he says in, verses, in verse 4, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. It's a quote here, he says, in verse, starting in verse 3, he says, He was preaching a baptism and repentance for the remission of sins. Verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The quicker places shall be made straight and the rough way smooth and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here John shows us five ways to prepare our hearts for the Lord. His message was prepared for the way of the Lord. Five ways. First he says, make his paths straight. See, before a king visited a country like, uh, you'd have someone, something like the Department of Transportation come out, make sure the road was great, make sure there's no dangerous bends, there's no potholes, you know, so there's no rough road for the king, and make sure there's no detours. In a spiritual sense, we don't want to take any detours away from the Lord. And I don't think almost anything in our lives can become a detour. I've seen folks go on doctrinal detours. They go down a path away from God's word, and it leads them astray from what God's word says. And before you know it, that they're out lost, wandering. And who knows what they believe anymore? It's being deceived and deterred from the faith. I've seen folks take geographic detours, career detours, relationship detours, all moving away from their relationship with the Lord and not closer. And going in the wrong direction and never giving back to the right road heading you know, they they're heading for destruction. I hear people oh yeah, we're praying about moving here. I said, Well, did you find a good church there first? Oh no, we'll find something when we get there. Listen, my first first decision would be is there a good church there that I could go to when I move to this city or this town? See, John is saying, stop the direction you're going. Get back on track. Don't take any detours. And we need to ask the Lord to reveal whether or not we are on a detour. This relationship that I'm in presently, will it draw me closer to the Lord or further away? This business agreement that I have, this new job that I have, this move that I'm planning on making, will it draw me closer to the Lord or is it going to drive me further away from Him? John says you need to stay right on the right path. Secondly, John says, with Jesus' arrival, every valley shall be filled, he says. Now, valleys, we know, they're, they're the low places. They're depressions. Maybe you've kind of been low lately. Maybe the, the after holidays blues. Maybe you're depressed. doesn't have to be that way. Fill in your valley, John says. Every valley shall be filled. In other words, bring in the material so God can fill in your valley. What material? Bring in the Word of God. Get back to the Word of God. And it starts really with our thoughts. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that we are to be casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Take your thoughts captive when you're in that place. Preach to yourself. Fill your mind with the Word of God. And in so doing, your heart will be full. Your life will be full. In fact, we're told in Psalm 119, verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And as a result, we're told in Isaiah 58, 14, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. You want to get out of the valley that you're in? Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in God's word, and God will lift you up. Well, maybe that's not your problem. Maybe there are some high hills that need to be brought down in order for you to prepare for the, for the Lord in your life. Which is number three that John has here. He says, every mountain and hill will be brought low. In other words, these high places that we're talking about are the ones that need to be demolished. We're talking about pride. We're talking about self-righteousness. Self-sufficiency. And our need to humble ourselves before God. Tear down any high and lofty thoughts you have about yourself. Forget self esteem and, and esteem others better than yourself. Humble ourselves before a person Listen, I'm sorry. Say I'm sorry. Humble ourselves. Get that pride go. Fourthly, John says, The crooked places shall be made straight. Crooked has a connotation of twisted or perverse. It's referring to, to sin. Have you fallen into sin? Or are things that you once considered sin now a regular part of your life? Get rid of them. Flee from them. Prepare your heart for the Lord. Last one on the list, verse 5, were to make the rough ways smooth. You know, we describe people as, oh, yeah they're a little rough around the edges. What are your rough edges? Or what makes it tough for others to be around you? Or do you excuse yourself? Well, oh, that's just the way I am, you know. Or do you blame others for your reactions? Listen, God wants to change us. Five ways to prepare our hearts for the Lord. And again, remember, John is talking to believers. And these are heart issues that affect every single one of us. But that first step begins with repentance. It was John's primary message. Repent. And I love his boldness. You can just see the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. He wasn't afraid to tell it like it is. It wasn't looking for this large following. It was looking for hearts turned to God. You know, today there's this push in a lot of churches for for being seeker friendly and and you know seeker sensitive. And well, we don't want to you know we don't want to talk about sin. You know that that'll chase you know chase chase people away. We don't want to say anything that's going to offend them. We're going to play secular music because Christian music worship might be offensive to them. So we're going to play. We just want people to come in and 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 and, and there's this push to be seeker sensitive. I think we can safely say that John was more of a secret, insensitive type of guy. Don't believe me? Look at verse 7. <laughs> then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that come? <laughs> oh, John, you're so insensitive. You're going to turn people away from the church. Don't talk about judgment. Well, John did. Jesus did. So do we. See, the picture here that John is giving is that of a desert fire that's forcing the vipers out, the poisonous stakes, to flee ahead of it. In other words, God's wrath was a fire heading their way, and they're fleeing. Now, I don't know, in preaching, that I would go as far as John did, you know. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. But, understand, John was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's warning them, letting them know that they are sinning, and they're sinners, and unless they repent, judgment will come. God must judge sin, and he will. Now, I'm not saying every sermon needs to be this hellfire and brimstone preaching like John's here, but in preaching and teaching God's Word, it needs to be said that judgment is going to come from God against sin. Because the bottom line is, you need to know you are lost before you can be saved. The, the John here, referring to them as vipers, is telling them, the multitudes really, that they were children of the devil, the serpent. They were his offspring, this brood of vipers. They were lost. But the truth is, everyone born of woman except uh, Jesus inherits that sin nature. At uh, one time, all of us, as believers, were under the dominion of the devil. Even the Jews, God's chosen people, were not saved simply because they were, they were born Jewish. But I love, after John gets their attention, calling them broods of vipers, he doesn't tell them, okay, you brood of vipers, now go home, you stinking sinners. He doesn't just throw them away. It's not a name-calling type of thing. He gives them instruction on what they must do, how to make these changes. He says, listen, I know I've called you a brood of vipers, but this is what you need to do. If you're genuine in your repentance, then he tells them this, and us this. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, in John's day, trees that did not produce were useless. They were cut down and used for firewood. John's message is strong. The nation of Israel had been, not been productive, as God had expected them to be. And John is saying, unless there's repentance, judgment is going to come. The axe is going to come down. And he says, don't even think about this whole Abraham as our father But That's not enough. And I love John's boldness. And he says, man, I could raise up children from Abraham from these rocks if I wanted to. And I love the, the comparison between rocks in the Bible. And I'll, I'll even sing if no one praises the Lord. But I love John's boldness. See, because they were Jews and because they were descendants of Abraham, they thought, well, we're fine before God. We don't need to repent. And John's saying, oh, no, 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 no. You need to repent. You are not right with God. And I think we hear the same thing today. People think, well, I was raised in a church. My mom and dad went to this church. My grandparents did and so so I'm okay. I, I'm a Christian. Listen, God has no grandchildren. Either you're a born again child of God or not. And, you know, and I've heard Pastor Greg Glory say this many times, that, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger, you know, or going to being a police officer makes you a Krispy Kreme donut, or or you know, whatever this whole list of all those comparisons. The bottom line is each person has to make that commitment to Christ for themselves. And it begins with repentance. And my concern is that there are messages that are being given that are called the gospel that do not include the most essential element. See, the gospel, to, to be the gospel, the gospel to be the gospel, certain things must be mentioned. Uh, and and I, I often hear people allegedly preaching the gospel and they're missing it. Messages are being given out that are called the gospel that do not include the most essential ingredients. Ah, oh, come to Jesus and you'll be happy. The sky will always be blue. You'll be prosperous. It'll be great. That's not the gospel. Listen, it's come to Jesus because you're a sinner and you need to turn from that sin. And the wages of sin is death. But God offers you eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. You can find forgiveness. See, so they're leaving out the most vital ingredients. It would be like saying, I'm going to make you a chocolate cake, but I'm not going to use any chocolate. It doesn't work that way. You see, you can't preach the gospel without certain elements. What are they? First and foremost, the gospel must contain the cross. It must contain the cross. It has to be there. I think sometimes in our attempt to cross over to non-believers, we forget to bring the cross over. We forget to tell people, that hey, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He took your penalty for your sin upon himself on the cross. And and sadly, many offer Jesus as though he's just some you know, additive to their life and, and just make your life better, but that's not the case. We need to tell them, we're sinners. We've sinned against God, but why were you sinners? Christ died for us. So the cross has got to be the message in, the, in your gospel message. Secondly, the gospel, to be the gospel, there has to be the message of the shed blood of Jesus. Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus shedding His blood, our salvation would be impossible. But see, in the end, it all comes back down to the most important ingredient of all, and that's in the gospel, is repentance, turning from our sin. You see, you can say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You can say, I understand that His blood was shed for me to wash away every sin I've ever committed. But none of that applies to your life unless you repent of that sin. Ask God to forgive you of that sin. That's why the most important ingredient of the gospel is that of repentance. Repent from your sin. Turn from it. Turn to Christ. Embrace Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. See, the message of John is the message of repentance. But not only him, it's everywhere in Scripture. Peter said in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You might say, well, that was, you know, that was John, that was Peter, but Jesus didn't say it. I beg to differ. Jesus' very first words when he started his public ministry, found in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. very first words of Jesus, repent. And again, repentance means more than to just say, "'No, I'm sorry, although it includes that, because you can be sorry and never repent. but I, th- I think if you're truly repentful, then you will be sorry. Listen to Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10. it says, "For Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And this all really goes back to John's word in verse eight. If you're truly re- sorry, uh, truly sorry, really repentful of your sins, then there's going to be evidence in your life of that. You will bear fruit, fruit worthy of repentance, And that brings us to our final point. The final makeover in our extreme spiritual makeover edition is we have number one, the man, number two, the message, repent, number three, the makeover. So it's like the the part remembering in uh Chip and Joanna fixer upper. They have the big picture of the of the old beat up house, and they're getting ready. To, are you ready for your fixer? The big reveal. They're gonna pull it apart, and they go, oh, and they all the tears and all the crying. The big reveal. Now we know our ultimate big reveal is not here on this earth. Listen to First John three verse two, beloved. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's going to be our ultimate great big reveal. When we see Jesus face to face, and He completes that makeover in our lives. But until until that time comes, and our spiritual makeover, as you repent of your sin, as you bear fruit worthy of repentance, and you live a life marked by true repentance, people are going to stop. They're going to take notice. Because there's a radical change that's happened in your life that's been an extreme makeover if your life is truly marked by that of true repentance. So how do we know if we're on the right track? Good question. Same question that people wanted to know from this camel skin, long-haired, locust-eating preacher. Look at verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? Good question. If you've truly repented, what does that look like? What does repentance and the remission deliverance of sins look like when, when it issues forth from the heart? Well, John gives us three examples which reveal the fruit of a true spiritual life, and we're going to close with these. It's like showing the before and after pictures. Here are the changes that will take place if you're truly repented. This is what fruit looks like in your life. First, John says, number one, you will be compassionate. You'll be compassionate. God will change your life. You'll have compassion. Look at verse 11. He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. This isn't communism. This isn't a a social welfare program. It's simply saying if there's a heart change in your life, if there's repentance, you're going to have compassion for one another. You're going to help people. You're going to see what God has done for you and how God has blessed you. As a result, you want to bless other people because of what God has done. And I can tell you, this church is a church filled with those that help people. If there's a need, man, it's jumped on before. Even the staff here knows there's a need. And I love that. I love uh, also what Warren Weir'sby says in his book on being a servant. He says it well. He says, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving talents to the glory of God. That's what happens when your heart is changed. You want to have compassion on people. You want to help people. This brings us to the next fruit of a true spiritual life. It's one that is characterized by a lack of covetousness. Look at verse 12. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. See, these Jews were appointed by Rome to be the tax collectors for the Jews. And yet they were notorious for their dishonesty. The Roman government would say, Okay, we want this much money from everybody. But they had the opportunity to, How they made their money is, They would add to that. So well, you owe this much more. And they would rip people off. And they, they earn their own living by adding a sizable sum to the total, Whatever they could get away with. And it's really rooted in covetousness. Coveting material goods. So John says, okay, if there's true repentance in your life, the fruit is going to be, collect no more than what is appointed for you. A transformed life. An extreme spiritual makeover life marked by repentance will be compassionate and not covetous. And finally, the final example of the fruit of of a true spiritual life, it's one that is characterized by contentment. Look at verse 14. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not Intimidate anyone are accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So now, too, we have uh, uh, Jews employed by Rome to be the guards in the temple, sort of like a police force subordinate to the Roman army. They weren't paid that much, and so they would abuse their powers by taking bribes from the people, ripping these, these people off. And so John says, not so if they were bringing forth the fruits of repentance. And each example here, Material things are either shared or shunned in favor of the spiritual blessings. Really, it just comes back to the kingdom principles. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Especially in the case of tax collectors and soldiers. See, the changed heart would lead to radical changes in their lives, in their behaviors, and it would be noticeable. And John here is showing us that you can show that you're a changed person, whether you're in this profession or that profession. You don't need to give up your profession. He says, if you're a soldier, be like this. If you find yourself a tax collector, be a tax, le- tax collector, but do it this way. He doesn't say, if you're a tax collector, you better quit, man. You, you, know, you, you can't work for the government. He doesn't say, if you're a soldier, man, you got to leave the army, you got to be a total pacifist. No. He says, be a good soldier. Be a great soldier. Be, be a good tax collector. Do what is right. Whatever position, whatever profession you are in, be good at it. Be a good one. If you're a housewife, be a good housewife. Doctor, be a good doctor, a plumber. Be the best you can be representing that new life you have in Christ, bearing fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, you can show the change in your life right now where you're at. You can bloom where you're planted. Listen, as we close, we need to ask God to give us an extreme spiritual makeover. Maybe this morning the greatest need is that of repentance. Maybe you've been going down a road you need to stay away from and you've been pursuing this detour. And God is saying, stop. Stop the direction you're going. You need to turn around. Maybe there's some depression in your life. And it's there because you need to be, you're not being filled with, with God's Word. You're not being obedient to what God's Word says. You're just looking at your circumstances instead of looking at Him. Or maybe you're looking too much at yourself and there's some high places of pride and self that, that need to be torn down. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness from someone, maybe there's a, a sin you need to confess, Some rough edges have grown you've grown comfortable with. I know that every single one of us can ask the Lord for that makeover for us to be more compassionate, to not be covetousness, to be more content. And as we ask the Lord to make that extreme makeover in our life, He's faithful to provide for us exactly what we need. doesn't cost us anything. costs Him everything. He went to the cross, shed His blood for us, rose again from the dead, and He's coming back soon to take us home to complete our makeover. Listen, messages of repentance, <laughs> they're not fun. <laughs> you know, I'd much rather talk about the love of God and the grace of God, all that, but it's what God's Word says. And when we hit it in God's Word, we have to look at it square in the face and say, Lord, is there something I need to repent of? Is there an area in my life that I need to turn from? Finally, if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, that first step is coming to Him and recognizing you're a sinner and and confessing your sin to Him, asking that forgiveness. I want to close with this. It's been said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a Savior. And it begins with what Peter said in, 1 Peter, or in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord if you don't know the Lord this morning, as soon as the service is over, please come up and talk to me or one of the pastors here. I would love to pray with you, give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Christ. For all of us as believers, keep our eyes on the Lord, keep focused on Him, living for Him by the grace of God and the power of His Holy Spirit. And He'll continue to build us up and get us where we need to be. And He'll complete that makeover in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in each one of our lives. And, Lord, at times we can't see it, but as we dig into your word, your Holy Spirit shines areas in our lives that we need to deal with. Lord, help us not to be calloused over these things. Help us not to walk away from here and just forget about these things. But, Lord, help us to be able to recognize where there's areas that we need to deal with and ask you for the help in those areas. Lord, as we you go room for room in our lives, Lord, help us to open up all the doors wide open and say, have your free will in this area, Lord. Whatever area that may be. Lord, as you said in Revelation, you stand at the door of our hearts and you knock. If any man opens the door, uh, you will come in and you'll have fellowship. You'll sup with them. Lord, maybe there's been some doors that have been shut in our lives and, and we're not letting you in. Lord, help us to open that door so you can have all of our lives completely. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again today. Lord, they would see their need for you, their need for repentance, and they would cry out to you and be saved today, Lord. Thank you for our time this morning. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.